Where did you grow up? What kind of community was it and how was it? Hmm. So I grew up in a multitude of communities. Um, I was born in, what is it? <laughs> I was born in Lower East Side, New York, um, to a mom that had, I have a brother that's nine years older than me. Um, and I have a sister that's five years younger than me. And I also have like, I would say I grew up in a polyamorous, non-romantic relationship. My mom and her best friend were like so sisters. Mm. And we grew up as all siblings in the same household regularly. Mm. Mm. <laughs> so when I say I have brothers and sisters, I actually have two brother, older brothers and an older sister and a younger sister. Mm. And I was um, born in Lower East Side. Um, we... I don't remember much, but my first five years, I was actually raised by my godmother, who was her soul sister, mm. um, and her name is Khadijah. She was a back, black Muslim, so I grew up in a very Muslim household in mm. which you weren't allowed to whistle in the house, and we got up at five o'clock in the morning to pray. Mm. Um, and I didn't know that until I was older because I didn't have any memories of my mother before the age of four. So then um, when I was around five, my mom, my biological mom, um, we were living in the Bronx. So I grew up in the South South Bronx, the first like eight years of my life. Mm. Um, when I was five, we had this huge fire. I remember seeing the whole building. It was a wa five floor walk up. We lived on the fifth floor. Mm. Um, and so I grew up on a block that everybody knew each other. You would go downstairs. Um, I remember playing with my bike. I remember going on, going on the roof and flying kites. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, I remember my first five years were like super delightful. And I used to, I was a cloud watcher. I used to watch clouds a lot and make shapes and make stories mm -hmm. connected to these clouds that were mm -hmm. moving. Um, and so then we had a fire. We were houseless for about three years. Um, I wouldn't have known because in New York City is illegal to have children houseless. So they housed us in an apartment building that was a shelter. Mm -hmm. um, I went to a local school, which was one of the worst schools in the Bronx. It was literally on the New York <laughs> Times. <laughs> Um, because they went to go see the, no, it's like the daily news. Um, they went to go see the classroom and one of the teachers like misspelled a word. And it was like all over the, <laughs> the newspapers in mm. New York um, while I was a student there. Um, in second grade, I couldn't read. Um, and by third grade, we moved to Harlem, New York. And I want to say Harlem really raised me mm. as much as my like, I guess integral years of the first seven years were like throughout the Bronx. Um, Harlem is where I learned my culture. I learned who I was. I was affirmed. I learned how to read. Um, so by the time I was in third grade, I was slowly getting to age like kindergarten reading. And by the time I was in fourth grade, I was at reading level, mm -hmm. which um, projected my life, to be honest. So then, um, I don't know how much y'all want to know. So, okay, no, so then. <laughs> um, so when I was eight, we moved to Harlem. My brother was in and out of in being incarcerated, mm -hmm. my um, biological brother. Um, 
my sister, my, one of my brothers had been sent to Africa to avoid getting eaten up by the streets. Mm. My other brother was like in and out of jail. Um, and that year he got charged with three attempts of murder and ended up doing about a 12 year bid in jail. Um, and following that, maybe this is all like fourth grade, fifth grade. Um, six months later, my dad died of brain cancer. Mm-hmm. Um, my dad was this dope ass, um, born in the mountains of Puerto Rico. Um, he was he was first and late te- technically he was first gen because he was born in Brooklyn, New York, but he was sent to live with his grandmother who was an indigenous Puerto Rican. Mm. Um, And I know now through DNA that I'm actually indigenous Puerto Rican. For a long time, I was like, no, y'all just have a black problem. I'm black and white, Mm -hmm. mixed together. Um, But I came to find out recently that I'm like, um, whatever, the ancestry. We won't go there, but (laughs) (laughs) controversial. Um, And we could talk about the trauma induce of like, white supremacy and going through that process of like, I don't even know who I really am, Lord. Mm -hmm. (laughs) We gonna pray to all gods here. Mm -hmm. Um, But what is it? Come to find out, there was a story that his grandmother was indigenous and on a biological level, it came up that he was definitely like a quarter, if not more indigenous. And so he grew up with her in the middle of the mountains um, in Arecibo, which is like, mountains but luscious like mm. just a lot of greenery mm-hmm. um and they would call him something called a hibaro mm. which is like he came with like water like um high water pants and a hat and <laughs> spoke country spanish you know um and so um but he played for a little while professional baseball and he mm. loved baseball and he taught me how to play baseball um my dad was like everything, but he was very much addicted to drugs at the end of his like time on this earth, but who wouldn't be with brain cancer, I guess. Mm. And we're talking about what, 20 years ago. So you can imagine the trials and tribulations of the medicine system he dealt with. Um, he didn't know English, um, but he would always tell me that math was universal. So I always did good in math because he always helped me with my math homework. That's cool. Yeah. Um, and so, my dad passed away in 94, and I was in fifth grade, um, which was like the winter of 94, and there was snow. There was snow that was like higher than the cars, I remember. Mm. And we were out of school for like three weeks because no one could get to school. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, yeah, and so my childhood was super complex, you know. Um, my mom has, th- had, has thyroid cancer um, her whole life um she was in and out of hospitals so like a lot of my memories of my mother i don't have a lot of memories before the age of like seven i mean like yeah there because she was just in and out of hospitals or you know Mm -hmm. and with my dad i don't remember him the first five years because he was in and out of being incarcerated as well Mm -hmm. um and when he passed it was like i think like he was which is weird because he's a Sagittarius, but he was like the stable parrot. <laughs> My mom was way more strict and just like super structured, her Capricorn, but she was a money maker. Mm. It was always, rent was always paid. Um, so we lived in Harlem. Um, across the street like my mom since my brother had been sucked into the streets and eaten up as we call it 
she um she didn't let me go out my childhood was very secluded after like nine years old when we mm-hmm. moved to harlem um and i was responsible responsible for a kindergartner which was super ridiculous um by the time i was like when my father died by the time i was 10 i knew how to take uh what is it like a supermarket ad mm-hmm. and price out 150 dollars worth of groceries for the month mm-hmm. i knew how to cook clean iron I remember the first time a, like, aunt from Puerto Rico came over for my father's side and slapped the shit out of me because I didn't iron correctly. Like, I lived a very interesting lifestyle. The house was impeccable because I had to have it impeccable. Mm-hmm. If not, I was in trouble. Um, I always remember this one story where my sister refused to put on a coat, and it was, like, January, and she wanted to wear, like, this fancy dress, mm-hmm. and me, like, crying, like, you're going to get my ass whipped, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, like, that's mm-hmm. like, signature moment um, <laughs> in my life. Um, when my mom, when my dad passed away, my mom started, like, taking in houseless young people. Um, I think it was, like, her way of dealing with her grief of not being able to control. My um, father was her second husband to die. Her mm-hmm. first husband died. Um when my brother was like three years old mm-hmm. um she had lost her father she lost like her oldest brother her father and her husband within like a two-year stand mm-hmm. so she just you know when we talk about like trauma and working through trauma like as a and my mom is blackity black she black black mm-hmm. so you know as a black feminine presenting person a black woman cisgendered woman she just couldn't she wasn't allowed to process. I remember when my dad died, she felt like, I think about it on a psychological notion, she thinks because she prepped us, like she would be like, he's gonna die, he's dying, he's dying. And in her brain, she thought when he died, you would be prepared. Mm -hmm. And so when he passed away, on an emotional basis, I was supposed to be perfectly fine. Right. Um, And that was like far from the case. Mm. Um, So yeah, and then... um, let me see. Got through sixth grade. I had really awesome teachers. I think if I can do say anything in my life, I had really awesome teachers and mentors that like without them I wouldn't have survived mm-hmm. all of the trauma. Like my second grade teacher, Mr. Costello, who was like super tall. I don't know, like maybe like this is me being stereotypical. <laughs> so I'm gonna just put my bias out there. But like maybe like Italian or something, mm-hmm. where, but was just in, so intelligent. And he would play um, math bingo and would buy us ICs after school <laughs> and would um, greet us as like, hey scholars, you know, like was really, really just That's a really great cool. stu- you know, teacher. And then I remember my, ba- my worst teachers, we won't go there. Uh, <laughs> but you know, um, the, you know, just had really great teachers. I remember, um, Mrs. Brown, fourth grade teacher, used to play Anita Baker after mm. school and be like, we're going to read you behind. And then the next day would have me teach all of the students. So she actually taught me the lesson of the next day. Mm. So I thought I was like so smart. I was like, oh, I know how to do this. Yes, you do, Taisha. Go ahead and teach mm-hmm. group number four who's struggling. They struggling. Mm-hmm. And all of a sudden, like boosted my confidence or like my mom being late to pick me up wasn't like a big deal. She would just hold me. Mm-hmm. She would just hold me. And I truthfully believe that as a though. Mrs. Brown definitely gave my mother for $40 and let her borrow money because mm. whatever kindness of her heart. Um, so I had like, I mean, I went to Mahalia Jackson Elementary School on 129, no, no lies, 139th and Frederick Douglass. 
And so, you know, learn. I didn't know what it was not to have a black teacher. Mm-hmm. All my teachers were black. I didn't know what it was to not have like pride in who I was. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Um, I didn't know what it was to have like colorism bias other than the fact that I was Puerto Rican and that was hard for people Mm. Lord I was like one out of two people that were Puerto Rican in the whole school when I first got there and I remember the assistant teacher Mr. Rivera but he never really like he was like we all people of color like he was very much about like we're all from the same thread Mm -hmm. um and so coming out of that structure went into middle school same kind of structure went to Roberto Clemente middle school Majored in drama with Miss Sills, Lord, Miss Sills. Um, but had really great teachers there that were just, uh, my teachers always saw something that I don't think I saw in me. Mm. Um, and I would still say it's taking 35, 36 years for me to see what they saw in me. And they would just like nurture me, like, how are you doing? And, you know, what's going on after school and all of these other things. Mm. Um, when I turned like and during this time I would say like when my dad died then my brother got incarcerated we were like going upstate New York Mm -hmm. I saw my brother like go you know we went through a different system right like the incarceration system is a whole different level of system and Mm so um sorry um we're three years going to Rikers Island regularly maybe every other week, every four weeks, um, visiting my brother in those spaces. And then um, my brother was supposed to do four years, <laughs> ended up getting in a really big fight, which almost took his like life and like cut his like eye from one side to the next, like was in a coma. Um, and you got to see a lot of different levels of impoverished people. You gotta, you know what I mean? Like, it was very weird. It was all weird. Um, it costs so much money, so it like hurt my family a lot mm. with my father's death, and then like my brother being incarcerated, and so, you know, we never went hungry, but sometimes the lights weren't on, you know, and so at like twelve, I started like doing little side hustles so that I can wash me and my sister's clothes. Mm. Um, during that time, of course, like dealing with like. Um, I was considered like a tomboy during that time and um, coming from a Latinx family that didn't know how to deal with gender and sexuality it was so difficult because during that time it was really hard because everybody was like you're a lesbian I'm like uh, I really I, actually yes I am a lesbian but I really like dudes too mm-hmm. <laughs> like mm-hmm. I am lesbian but and also <laughs> have a David Boreanaz like poster on my ceiling and I'm hoping it just falls on me regularly so I'm not <laughs> sure if I'm just lesbian mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. and you know obviously like sexuality was not something that was talked about um, during those years like I lost so much hair like I had my hair like you know and it started to become first like I want to cut my hair and I was like no you can't cut your hair I took a scissors to my hair got the ass whooping but mm-hmm. i cut my hair um, yes <laughs> i am over this you don't do it you don't you don't help me with this hair in the mm-hmm. morning i'm mm-hmm. over it um and then like my hair was falling and i realized like i was dealing with like so many high levels of stress at such a young age that it was just like it was falling out through clumps mm-hmm. um so then um 
barely skidded my way through middle school um was absent all the time like i'd be like as long as i kept a 65 my mom was like you could stay home i was like what okay mm. so i watched a lot of jerry springer for like two years of my life mm-hmm. um i watched a lot of tv shows um barely made it to high school got into high school um was supposed to go to the zone school my counselor was like, no, you can't go to your zone school because, like, in New York City, your zone school cons- is contingent on how, like, social economics goes. Mm-hmm. So, like, in Harlem, the zone school is, like, I guess where all the kids that don't graduate high school ba- basically go. Mm-hmm. Um, Brandeis in Harlem. And so, um, and it was back in the day when, like, there were big schools, like, mega schools. Um, like 4,000 kids going mm. into one building, you know, That's type a lot of schools. Of yes, exactly. <laughs> um, so they were like, no, 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 we're going to do this and I think you'll qualify for a specialized school. And I was like, okay. And I did it and I mm. qualified mm-hmm. and the counselor got me into the specialized school. Um, I didn't know what the hell that meant. I was eight years old. You know, it's kind of, I mean, not eight years old, eighth grader. Like, what it was I, 13? Like, the decisions you make, right. <laughs> you have no idea what you're making at right. 13 years old. Um, I wanted to go to certain schools. My mom wouldn't, like, when we did the application process, she wouldn't let me apply to those schools because she was like, I don't want you in those neighborhoods and around mm. those people. And I was like, they have a really great program and what I'm interested in. Um, anyway, went to high school, was the weirdo. um ninth grade was really really hard i got picked on a lot because i didn't have like i mean i lived in new york you know you're supposed to be like jordan down Mm -hmm. down, i was living in a household that i didn't know was making like four thousand dollars a year in new york city Mm. Um, (laughs) which like qualified for all the things um exactly so then i started to steal my brother's clothes Mm. Um, and I used to wear his clothes and mm-hmm. people stopped making fun of me as much, but still were like, they don't fit you. Right? And you're still <laughs> like acting really odd. Yeah. Right yeah. now I would be killing it, but <laughs> back then not so much. Um, and so then, um, but again, my teachers are what saved me. Sue, my English teacher that was like, um, Asian Canadian and mm. would like, we would count how many times he was gonna say a and like a like right and whoever like got the closest number was buying somebody in mickey d's a soda mm. you know like whatever um and we made and he made jokes he would like he would joke on the kids that like thought they were like so fresh and so cool <laughs> mm-hmm. so it was like the greatest class like mm-hmm. they would you know and so um high school was pretty dope after that i mean ninth grade was difficult but once I was in 10th grade, um, that year I got like a Apple internship. The year after that, I got another internship. Um, and I started to become a lot of myself through that. I decided like when I did the project where I went down south and I learned through Black Panthers and I was doing all of these things, I came back to school and I was like, oh, I'm, they used to have this saying, so when someone fell asleep, because I mean, we're all teenagers doing mm-hmm. this like really ridiculous like boot camp <laughs> of learning. Um, when somebody would fall asleep, we would have to do a mile of like, we would have to run for a mile, everyone mm. together. You know, that was interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, honestly, on some old school stuff, it was very militant, mm-hmm. but it taught 
let's just say I have no problem getting up at five o'clock in the morning and getting some real ish done. So it taught, it got me ready in ways that I didn't realize I needed to be ready mm. to tackle some bigger things I was going to have to tackle at some point in my life. But after we would finish, they would be like, when you go back home, the same people that were in the corner is going to be there. Nothing in your neighborhoods are going to change. Mm. And we we're like, you're wild. But then when we all came home, we were like, oh shit, nothing changed. The only thing that changed was us. And so for me, it became an opportunity. Like I realized like, I don't want to be here. Like, I don't want to live with my mother. Around the time I was 15, my mother started abusing drugs. Well, I don't even know when she started abusing drugs, but it was super noticeable. Mm -hmm. um, her addiction had really taken over. Um, and it was affecting our relationship. I was working and hustling every single summer to buy my sister and me like clothes, mm -hmm. to wash our clothes, to buy glasses, you know, like all the bare minimums really. And so anyway, I um I said I'm gonna I'm I'm going to college. I'm out of here. And so I just started working really, really hard, getting my grades up, did all of those things, got into like a series amount of like colleges, um, and ended up at New Paltz. Um yeah, high school got so much better. <laughs> um, dating was really hard, weird, hard and weird. Um, I made really good friends, um, but I was definitely like what they would consider in my time, like a late bloomer in the sense of like, I was interested in humans, but I was not interested. I was more mature when I was 15 than I am now about relationships. So mm. keep on to your tokens and don't like waver. So like I wouldn't date anybody at my school. Mm -hmm. I'd be like, because mm -mm, if I have to see you in biology, it's on and popping. I do not want to see you <laughs> in school. So mm -hmm. I had like, I always dated like Catholic schoolboys because um, <laughs> they were just, I thought they were, they were safe. They were easy. You know mm -hmm. what I mean? And I came from like what people would consider to be like the hood so that was like middle class black people right, you know and right. for me it was also like I I it was hard for me to be in the hood because it was like I was considered a bookworm I would consider it a nerd whatever that means now now nerd is cool in the hood but we'll go there <laughs> um, it's completely changed so much on um, the parallels but you know um and I was I wasn't picked on only because my brother was known as like very extremist. My mm. mother was also known as an extremist. I was definitely taught how to fight mm. very early. Like I mean, I didn't have to fight on the regular, but if I had to, there wasn't a problem and I couldn't go home and lose a fight mm. or not fight. Because then I was not fighting. I was getting my ass whipped by mm. the mother. So I had no <laughs> other choice. Mm. But um I guess like dating people that were in middle class really taught me a lot about class dynamics that I didn't understand mm. um, and how I was normalized. Like I was normalized. It was normal to live with like 10 people in a two bedroom house. Right. And then you go to like, you know, you meet someone that, you know, is going to an all girls Catholic school because that's those are the two people that date. That's the way it works. Um, but I'm th being thrown in this pool of humans. And um, you go to a brownstone and they live like in a, like their father is an engineer mm -hmm. and they own, you know, multiple brownstones in Harlem. And it changes your perspective of like, oh, okay, 
this is different. Mm-hmm. Like, not every, you know what I mean? Um, not everyone lives like this, right? Mm-hmm. Um, like, in my mother's eyes saying, like, we don't live in the projects was, like, a big deal because most of our family lived in the projects. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, um, yeah, dating was super complex, but it taught me so much, and it exposed me to so much. And then you had all of these people, like, the people I dated like their parents were like professional black professionals and i also live next to black professionals like mm. my neighbors were awesome they like one was a lawyer the other one was like um worked in wall street and they were always like encouraging me mm. um their kids went to like all girls catholic school <laughs> and me and like they had a daughter that was like the same age and they would always be like why can't you be like her and i'm like oh, you have no idea <laughs> right but i think part of it was that i wasn't really focused on other humans and i didn't realize that till my senior year i started dating someone and his mother loved me because i was like you you're not going to college you're not doing nothing with your life right. <laughs> get your life together um and I guess very early on, I knew that I was like, the person I need to be with needs to be matching my energy, mm-hmm. right? Um, and I also understood that degrees didn't make intelligence because I saw so many people, like my mom was an extremely intelligent person. To this day, I can call my mom and be like, can you spell this? Because I have dyslexia. And she'd be like, da 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 right? Like, <laughs> she's just, she's excruciatingly intelligent. Mm-hmm. Um so anyway went to graduated went to state university of new paltz um had a very interesting experience there Mm -hmm. um was my first time being in a predominantly white space Mm -hmm. um growing up in harlem like and i in my high school was like 80 percent dominican Mm-hmm. You know, I was like part of five percent of like Puerto Ricans, mm-hmm. and then I was like fifty per fifteen percent, if that, black. But we were all black. Right. We go there. Right. Absolutely. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> the boat just landed in a different place, in a mm-hmm. different space. Um, uh, yeah. Lord. For real. Um, so I. Um, yeah. So my Spanish was Dominican because like Dominicans be like, you don't know Spanish. I'm like, I do because. My, bro- my father didn't know any English and I was good at translating. Mm. So that's been like, like if you say anything, even if it's academic level Spanish, I will be able to translate into English. But when I have to actually speak academic Spanish, I'm like, oh, reluctance. Ah. Mm. Um, but they were the ones that pushed me to mm. like be like, no, you gotta speak Spanish. I'm not gonna talk to you if you don't speak Spanish. So then a couple of those friends went to college with me mm. um, and that was really dope. Um, well, I wouldn't even say they were friends. You know how it is. Like, high school is, like, all, like... It's, like, the caste system 101, right? <laughs> so, I would say, like... I was, like, a person that was considered... I would consider, like, a floater. Because mm-hmm. I was, like... Even though I was in this caste system, like, I would go have lunch with this person. I was, like... Cap- By the time I graduated, I was, like, captain of the um, of the softball team. And I was on the chess club okay. and yearbook. <laughs> so, I was just, like... I used to float, you all know right. what I mean? Like, between all the people. Um... And I, and I realized later, like, people used to get agitated with me because I used to understand things faster than they did. Mm. But I refused to apply myself the first two years. So then after I started applying myself, everybody was like, yeah, we know. You're like a nerd. Come on. Right? Like, <laughs> let's graduate high school. So right. it was, like, really dope. I only graduated, like, 60 people. 
Um, it was a very small high school. Um, it was considered a portfolio-based high school, so it was mm. like very thematic. So mm. you had to graduate. To graduate, so in all the other high schools in New York, you had to take what was it like eight regents. So in every subject, you had to take a regent, so you had to pass it. Mm. Now I'm gonna let you know, as a social studies teacher, if you gave someone the regents right now the likeliness of them being able to pass it even on a collegiate level possibly not because it's very very hard task um in my opinion and so um but my high school you had to graduate with eight portfolios in the eight portfolios you actually had to imagine writing a portfolio for math it was like what the Mm -mm. right Mm -mm. but you did all the portfolios were like 20 pages and above oh lord um and you had to present it to a board every single portfolio it had to be approved by two professors Sorry. No worries. No worries at all. <laughs> oh, man. It's, it's been good. Uh, yeah, it's hilarious. I'll, yeah. <laughs> we can talk about it in a minute. Um, so, I, what is it? So, I, you had to present, you had to get approval from two professors and then a present to a board to graduate. All eight portfolios. Oh, wow. So, by the time I came into college, I was like, oh, you just want me to write this five-page paper? No problem. (laughs) (laughs) Thesis, got it. Critical thinking, yes, come through. So, definitely got me prepared for that um, type of... But what I wasn't, I think, prepared for was, like, dealing with my implicit bias, dealing with my trauma. Like, now Mm. that I was, like, away from Harlem um, and didn't realize that like for the past 12 years I have been adulting Mm -hmm. in a way that I shouldn't have Mm -hmm. um and now I was in a place where I was being like seen as a full-length adult only also because I had all the adulting skills other people didn't have Mm -hmm. like I was going to college and people were like I don't like I had a roommate like that did not wash her underwear because she never learned how to wash clothes Mm -mm. and she would just buy packs of underwear (laughs) and so I was, it's very, it was a very huge culture shock. Mm -hmm. Um, Thankfully, I was part of this program called EOP, um, Educational Opportunity Program. And so the goal of that, and that's the reason why I got into so many like schools also was because I fit this criteria where you could see the growth of my GPA. Like I went from having a 2.3 to having like a 3.9 my last two years. And then they took young people that were first generation Mm -hmm. and or like their parents didn't make a lot of money. Mm -hmm. And so they would you would go through the EOP program to get into the college. And so the they took you on and you had an EOP advisor and your regular advisor. You had a mentor, mm. um, which my mentor was dope as AF. She was like a senior. She was like, let's go. We're going to go eat together. And I was I like, <gasps> and around all these seniors, right? And mm-hmm. so like one of the things that was really cool about New Plus, like the people of color were like, you're a person of color. I got your back. I don't even care. Like, <laughs> I is, don't yeah. care. <laughs> I got you, right? <laughs> and so um, instantly, you know, and everybody kind of knows each other in a way, right? Like, I mean, 14% of, it was 14% of people of color going to SUNY New Paltz when I was going there. Um, mm. But some were a lot, like, I would say maybe 4% were like international students, which is a whole different demographic of POCs, right? And yeah. The way they interact with the world and, you know, who, you know, all the things. So, Absolutely. Um, it was a great experience. It was like the best college experience I would have asked for myself. Um, I became an RA. Um, I was president of the NAACP. Um, I had helped with multiple spaces Mm -hmm. of change. Um, 
my first year there, the president knew me by first name, which was not a good thing. Um, or was a good thing, whatever. Right. Um, I had great professors, oh my gosh, who have like then passed in the past couple of years, but you know, like Dr. Margaret Lewis, who was um, got a doctorate of linguistics. She was the first African American woman to get, and I don't like to use African American, black woman to get. Uh, um, a doctorate from NYU in linguistics. Mm. So she was just a mastermind. <laughs> was a mastermind. Um, Dr. Williams Myers, I gave you my recommendation and was my advisor for black studies. They were the ones that kept me. They kept me real good. Mm -hmm. um, they held me tight, you know. Right. Um, and they would let me ask some questions I shouldn't be able to ask them. You know, like my intro to black studies class my first year, I decided I was going to write a paper. My thesis paper for that class was going to be like, why do fraternities and sororities like beat their people, right? Like physically beat their people. Mm -hmm. um, and at the time, um, it was like something that people took like, you know, like, look, I'm pledging and I'm right, bleeding. And it's like, is. wow, baby, violence. Okay. Mm -hmm. And I remember um, Dr. Margaret Lewis was an AKA. And I remember coming to her office and I'm like, can I interview you? She's like, yeah, sure. <laughs> and so then I come maybe like later on in the semester and I interview her and I think about it this is a woman that was like 70 something years old she must have been like you young little <laughs> who the fuck cause I asked her some crazy like did you beat people like uh -huh. were you about that like what did <laughs> you, you have to that? do and I remember at the end one thing that I remember at the end of the conversation I asked her <laughs> I was like um, so why do you believe in Jesus this white Jesus, you go to church every Sunday to pray to the white Jesus, <laughs> and you the dean of black studies. And I know she must have been like, this kid is driving mm -hmm. me. And all she did was um, she mentored me more. Mm -hmm. She taught me that all of the things can exist. She taught me actually about spirituality. Dr. Margaret Lewis was the one that like, she, I don't know if her whole story, but in ways, I don't think she could have children. So she adopted like four kids mm. and raised them with her husband. And I mean, when I mean she was a champion, like we used to have this one hall that was called Chango Hall. And mm. I don't know if you know what Chango Hall is. It's like, a, I do. it's a Yoruban God, mm. which happens to be the one, well, we didn't even get into that story. My mom is a Santera which is a like a Yorubian priestess. Mm -hmm. And I grew up within Muslim and that, which believes in Buddhism, believes in all, all religions are true. It's just that they were in a different space and they have a different story of creation. Right. Anyway, um, they, so a Chango Hall, which was a, like, it was a dormitory for um, students, had mu black murals, black power murals. So, like, Huey B. Newton murals, mm -hmm. like, type of space. Um, and it was named after African God. And they were mm -hmm. trying to, like, bring it down mm -hmm. as a hall. And Margaret Lewis, she was, like, she taught me how to be, like, she taught me that you don't have to yell. You don't have to use, like, slurs. You don't have to be... You don't have to say certain things. It is what you say. And to use language as power. Because um, she would come in the room and she would say some crazy, craziness to the principal. I mean, to the um, to the deans or to, like, the president of the mm -hmm. university. And mm -hmm. you'd be like, did you hear what she said to them? Ever. Go ahead, Mark Way. 
Mm-hmm. You know, she was not playing um, <laughs> to the point that now Newport has like a center named after her um, because she's the dopest of the dope. She was like having Angela Davis, you know, yeah, like it. she was our Angela Davis. Mm-hmm. Um, so, um, yeah. And then I worked like three jobs i was taking like 17 to 20 credits a semester because i was on some i'm gonna finish i gotta get out of this campus i'm gonna finish this in three years Mm -hmm. my first semester i made like a 2.5 because i was acting like a high schooler Mm -hmm. (laughs) doing college classes my advisor was like no and then i found out the formula you know i would take like two really difficult classes with two really easy classes Mm -hmm. you know and kind of like figure out how you know if i i'm gonna get an a plus in this class and this class so if i get a c i don't even care it's gonna average out Mm -hmm. like i used to i just started i just started like learning the system um and I was working at Marist College one summer um, as a, um, so they used to have something called, they still have it, Upward Bound. And I was a counselor for them. And mm-hmm. it was really dope. It was like a great gig. Um, room and board, food, everything good. And you get a check. What? Mm-hmm. I could do this all summer. <laughs> I never went home for my summers or my winters. I would mm-hmm. just stay on campus. I had no interest going home. Um, and so I had, a, I wasn't sleeping because I was working night shifts there. Um, and I went the whole summer without sleeping. And then I came in and I had to do like RA training that semester, um, which depending on the campus, like the way ours worked was like, basically you were working disgusting hours for like three weeks before all the students came in. Mm -hmm. Um, and then also getting ready to be a junior, (laughs) Mm -hmm. which I was going more deeply into my major and all the things were happening. Um, and I had a manic episode. Um, I was placed into a, I was hospitalized for seven days. Um, it was that story is insane but yeah it was it was a moment in life um, and I was diagnosed with PTSD and bipolar disorder um, I went back home um, because I at the age of 20 everyone knew me on campus mm-hmm. like I don't mean to say everyone like oh everyone you know like I was in the newspapers I was you know we had so many rallies. I was an RA, which like puts you on the spotlight of all the dormitory spaces. Mm-hmm. I was, you know, I was a mentor for EOP. I was, mm-hmm. you know, like I had done so many things and I felt like everybody knew that I was hospitalized. And that was probably not true now that I'm older, but I can deal with that guilt or that like persona. Mm-hmm. And so I just got up and I never went back, even though I had the opportunity to go back. Um, the the school had asked me to take a semester off, um, but I couldn't like muster myself to go ever back on campus. Um, and so then I went back home, and I was like, I gotta get back to college. Gotta get back to college. So then I went to Hofstra University for a semester, and I met some of like my friends for like lifelong. Mm. Um, I was highly drinking. I was definitely in the space of alcoholism. Um, uh, Yes, high amounts of alcohol in my life. Um, Dealing with my queerness. Um, That past year I had also been like, so the boyfriend that was my boyfriend in high school was then my boyfriend in college. 
Um, he was super possessive in the middle of the year, my first year, I broke up with him because he was just like, this was back when cell phones were like, you know, it's a different lifestyle mm. now mm. when I used to have to like run around for a little like, I don't have no reception and nobody had reception on our campus. Mm -hmm. um, so, yeah. Um, but he was just, it was too much. And I felt like, and he had like cheated. It was like cheated on me the first semester. And I was like, fuck it. He came over and asked me to marry him in front of all of my friends in the front of like the, what is it, eatery hall. So like literally the whole freshman class at fucking six o'clock PM. Excuse me. I don't know if I can curse because I'm a sailor. Um, <laughs> was like right in front of the building. Um, and he proposed to me and I'm like, okay yeah you had just cheated on me like three weeks ago and you're here with a ring cool um so when i went to break off the engagement that february and like it was like lincoln's birthday some colonizer's birthday that we had a day off on monday um and it was like valentine's weekend too i remember that <laughs> yeah. so he came on the day of valentine's day and his school was like nine hours bus ride he came to get his ring um and he raped me and um then after that i think now that i'm older and i think about it, i'm like yeah of course i had a mental breakdown <laughs> that makes sense um and so then i went back home didn't tell anybody about anything even with him i was still kind of talking to him because in my brain like i didn't understand like yeah, I didn't understand, like, that fact that I had been raped because we had had sex previous and we were, like, fiancés and maybe it was a hiccup, but all the factors and things were there. And so went back home and was like, I have to go to college, went to Hofstra, was dating this fuckboy um, for a long time. Many fuckboys came in and out. It was a fuck... I, I was clearly in a place where I was like, I'm not going to be in a relationship. After him, I had gotten in straight into a relationship with another RA, and he was amazing. Mm. He was just so kind. I remember when that happened, he didn't even know what happened. And I had trashed my roommate, he came in, and he cleaned my whole room. And then we were friends for like four months, and then we dated for a year. But, you know, he was super sweaky, keen, He was like kind and nice and thoughtful, and I was in a place where I was destructive. And so he went to go get his master's. We were still dating and things just weren't going well. And then I had the meltdown and um, we broke up. And so then I went to Hofstra, did my thing. All the things happened. When I was 20, I came back to the city and I was like, I'm going to go to the college in New Rochelle. And so I graduated from the college in New Rochelle. Um, and I did some like crazy gangster stuff. Like I was taking 20 credits cause you know how transfer credits are <laughs> mm -hmm. from two institutions. Ain't mm -hmm. nobody trying to take nothing. Mm -hmm. <laughs> they try to get their money. Absolutely. So um, what should have taken me like three years. Well, tech, they, they didn't transfer a lot of credits, of course. So I was like, but I'm leaving here in two years. So I just got on like my hustle mindset and I just took I would take 18 to 20 credits always overdrive like every single in every single session I was taking winter I was taking six then I was taking 20 summer I was taking 12 20 um and I did that for two years and mm. graduated um 
while I was having a high drinking problem. Um, but everybody would look at me and be like, you got it so together. Because right. I had a full-time job. I was working human resources at um, Goodwill. Mm-hmm. Um, and so then in the middle of that, I decided right before, like maybe a year before I graduated, like the first year I worked at Goodwill, the second year I worked at Youth Ministries for Peace and Justice. And that's what stopped my drinking, to be honest, because I... had to be authentic to myself. Mm-hmm. Like, I can talk to young people about, like, real shit and then be right. like, well, on Fridays, I just... Well, I wouldn't say, like, I was drinking every night. I'm a social drinker. Mm. But I knew all the specials and every single week, and I was trash. Like, I am blessed to still be alive. Mm. I did a lot of... <laughs> a lot of negligent things. Um, and it was the way I was processing, you know, sexual violence. It was the way I was processing my bipolar disorder, which now I know that... All of those things are actually symptoms of bipolar disorder. Mm. Um, and so then I um, started working, when I, I started working there as um, coordinator of education, so I started getting young people into college and that made me really happy. Mm. Um, and then I, um, then I got pregnant of Jeremiah and Jeremiah really cleaned my act up. <laughs> um, started dating a dude, four months in we moved in together um and i had this child and so this is an 09 we're in 2009 finally (laughs) (laughs) go ahead go ahead um 2009 i have a kid um I got into John Hopkins. I was in. I was like, I'm gonna go to get my master's like instantly, because that was my like the reason why I was like pushing myself in New Paltz was because I was like, I'm about to get my master's in five years. Fuck this shit. I'm gonna be like 30. I'm gonna be 21 with a fucking master's. Mm-hmm. Fuck what you heard. I'm gonna be mm-hmm. out here. Um, and so for me, I was like, I'm 23 and I don't have my master's. Oh my gosh, my plan. Right. right? Yeah. Um, and I was one of those people. Like I still am, but not not nearly as much like i used to be that person i'd be like this is what i'm gonna do that should get done Mm. um and so i um got pregnant there was it was 2009 so we had the recession i got laid off from my nonprofit job that's when i was seven months pregnant of jeremiah um and that was a whirlwind um and then Three months later, I got into John Hopkins for like the full package program where you don't have to pay if you work in Baltimore for five years. Mm. And I was like, why? I'm about mm-hmm. to and then I was like, uh, but you're pregnant and you're about to have a kid. And are you really ready to like leave New York City to mm. move to Baltimore with a child? Mm. And all of that didn't sound like it was like sitting correctly. And so then I um, stood in New York. And I started applying to like Columbia and Fordham. When Jeremiah was nine months, I was in my master's program Mm. and I was working again. Um, And that was really interesting as well. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, Getting into going to Fordham was, uh, it was quite the experience. I understood predominantly why I didn't understand being the only black person in all of my classes. That was really hard. I think being the only like black person in like history classes when I was taking them, and it was different because at least in some classes, but like to have a whole like 
every single class i'm the only person of color right was just a whole nother level of experience Mm -hmm. um and also understanding like elitism because going to a state university or a small small private like the college of new rochelle is like it's not it's a different type of private it's like for people if that make not that sounds terrible but it (laughs) is um it's not that expensive Mm. now going to fordham you're like i mean you know and then i'm like i was at the eight time i was like what 26 Mm. and i was considered old Mm. and no i was like 25 yeah and i was considered old all the people that were coming out was coming out straight from high from college so they were all 21 22 and most of them weren't even paying for their education Mm. and here i am like a like a mom and at the time i wasn't single i was with the father of my children but it was a very interesting dynamic <laughs> the black male and their trauma mm, um, mm. and so working through all of that um jeremiah saved me from myself he saved me from myself but i didn't get to know jeremiah until he was about three or four because the first three years i was just working and going to school grinding yeah um i did go through a lot of postpartum so jeremiah's so we don't talk about like maternal trauma Mm. um like having a child first of all like a a a watermelon coming out of a lemon is traumatic i don't care what anybody says right (laughs) um and of course like i didn't understand like my gender fluidity so i i sometimes attest to it like I couldn't understand while it was happening of like dysmorphia and like what I was going through. But sometimes it was like, this doesn't feel like it's supposed to be what I'm doing. Right. Mm. But here I am. And in my family, I was old. Mm. Like you're 23 and having a baby now. You're old. Oh, my gosh. Finally, we're Mm. so proud of you. Mm. And I'm like, bro. Like this was not not the plan, you know, um, so when i had jeremiah i went through like heavy loads of postpartum Mm -hmm. like i didn't talk i remember i didn't talk to anyone for like nine months and i would just stay at home for like it was just high levels of depression that system is really interesting you know i lost because i got laid off i lost my health care when i was seven months pregnant so then my gyn wouldn't see me so i had to start with a whole new gyn Mm -hmm. um and i really got to see like the structures in a really interesting way like these institutions that are not here for people right um and um then when i had and then even when i had jeremiah he had early signs of like autism um and they wouldn't test him he was like hitting and i was like reading like fordham material right special education like all of these behaviors and i'm seeing my son literally do the behaviors and i'm like and i would go to my doctor and be like you know um (laughs) I read this right, in a right. book. And she's like, no, it's too early. It's too early. Yes. By the time Jeremiah was three years old, he could he knew everybody's name and how to spell them in the kindergarten class, but not could not say a sentence. Mm. Um but and yeah, he yeah, that's my lifesaver. So then I um so I got my diploma from Fordham University and that same week my mom had like we we were having a lot of living issues so we had bounce from house to house to house Mm -hmm. lots of things 
and so then oh my gosh i didn't even get into your questions no, i'm no, no. just I going through going. my life okay it's like you want me to talk about my life bam um, <laughs> good luck i don't know who would want to so then i um shit. um so then I get my diploma and something happened with the rent with my mom. I had paid, like, we had moved into her space. She owed, like, $15,000. Mm-hmm. So I paid $10,000 and the house was trash. So we re, like, painted, did all this stuff. This was, like, the original house that I lived in as a child, mm-hmm. um, the apartment. And um, there was, like, this $5,000 balance that she didn't tell me about. Mm-hmm. And so I, the literally the day I get my diploma in the mail from Fordham University, which no one can read because that shit is in Latin. <laughs> Um, by the way, I don't go to graduation, so I didn't go to any graduations. Um, <laughs> I ha- I'm working on celebrating myself. Go to your graduations. It's your celebration. You worked hard for that shit. Mm-hmm. Anyway, or don't, and but still celebrate. <laughs> Take yourself on a trip if you're me. Um, <laughs> what is it? So then went to, um, two days later, um, we were evicted. Um, and... I had a dual master's from Florida University, and I was living on the train for four months. Mm. Um, and that was <laughs> shit. Yeah, that was like the hardest time of my life. Yeah. Um, well, not the hardest, but definitely one of the hardest times of my life. And so here I was houseless again. And not breaking generation no curses of my child. So really dealing with like so many dynamics and um, dealing with systems that literally don't give a fuck about people. Mm. Like when I mean the amount of inhumanity we have towards humans. Mm-hmm. Um, and here I am, I'm like this adult that like, I have a job, I have this, I just need, you know, I really just need like, because back then in New York, and I mean, Colorado Springs wasn't like that when I got here, but you know, you used to have to have um, like a security deposit first month's rent, and then also you had to have a broker's fee because everyone had a broker. Mm. Um, and pay, you know, all the things. And so I started to have my pay stubs that would be able to, but I needed $6,000. Right. Um, got someone to let me borrow six thousand dollars so that I can get my first my my apartment. Um, yeah, I had a my best friend from Hofstra University, <laughs> my ride or die. Um, she was living in like a closet, like literally. It was probably like two of these rooms with mm. bathroom, living room, and all that. And she was living there with her boyfriend in Brooklyn, and she let me live there. Mm and living where we have been roommates in high school in college so it was just like i'm home you know and we (laughs) were like yeah exactly (laughs) we're like in um jewish russian brooklyn which (laughs) Mm -hmm. you know spasiva thank you so much sir like you see community in a different dynamic Mm -hmm. um and it's interesting because as much as we have like so much like oh people don't like black people like being in that space like people are like we don't care you're gonna buy from me yeah how you doing i see you every day you got a little kid cool hi hey Mm -hmm. you know Mm -hmm. it was completely different during that time also like my college years um i had a cousin that had a really bad drug addiction and I had taken her kid who had ADHD so when I got houseless when I was houseless I had already had I was having I had two kids Mm. one that was five one that was three one with ADHD one with autism the HDAD yes 
like had been like diagnosed before mm. man that kid joshua joshua used to break my take my textbooks break them and throw them out the window like break them yes like like break the pages uh and I would come home, like get off the subway and see, see all of my textbook mm. on the block. Mm. Yo, Joshua. <laughs> Joshua taught me a lot of patience. <laughs> Joshua taught me um, also, to, I mean, parenting taught me like, you know, I grew up in a house, you did something, you get your ass That was mm. the only thing. Or you're getting yelled at. Right. So definitely having Jeremiah taught me how to deal, you know, my the children that I've raised have taught me how to um, work through like my childhood trauma you know like what parent do i want to be versus the parent that was provided mm-hmm. or was in front of me some of it was survival and then some of it was just you know unexplainably just violent right so i um <sighs> moved into that place got out of being houseless which was great um so it was really helpful for me to understand like structures and really change my point of view. And I was like, I got pregnant of Anaya and I was teaching in the South Bronx. And I was like, I don't, we can't, we live in a one bedroom with a kid and we're about to have another kid. Mm-hmm. We can't do this. We need to find. And as we were find, trying to find a two bedroom apartment, it was like, this is just not manageable and it makes no sense. Um, one of my closest friends from New Paltz, um, moved out here because um, her brother was in the military and like the reality is like my first real love um, and at the time I was married and she was married and I moved out here to be with my best friend and to change my cost of living mm-hmm. <laughs> um, that was seven years ago had Anaya realized that like so one of the things new york does i mean i had spent time in dc because i did internships and all this other stuff that occurred that we yeah but as the first time i had like moved from a state permanently mm-hmm. and colorado is so quiet colorado springs that all that was <laughs> here imagine. was me and my thoughts right <laughs> and all the 30 years of trauma i had accrued that mm-hmm. i hadn't really dealt with excuse me and so then um Yeah, um, I realized I didn't like the person I was married to. Mm-hmm. I was like, I don't even know who the fuck you are. We were in survival mode, bro. Mm-hmm. Now we're like thriving and I don't like you. I don't like the way you think. I don't like the way you function. I don't like mm-hmm. the way you see the world. Mm-hmm. Like me and you are two different people. Right. And um, while we were trying to survive together, with children and I was like the only person full-time working and I was the, only, the one that took care of everything that made sense mm-hmm. um, and in that relationship it was like it was a lot of layers of like hmm realizations when I came to Colorado like I got pregnant I got a job I was like oh we moved out of like my friend's house I moved on to our own little situation and he he refused to like let me stay home with my kid for six months. Mm. And I was like, I had like supported you. When you met me, you didn't even have a bachelor's. Now you have a bachelor's and you're going into a master's program. You won't let me stay six months with my baby. Mm-hmm. This is problematic, even though I have the savings. Absolutely. Right? And then like started spreading rumors about how like I didn't want to work, baby. I've only worked my whole mm. life. So then I went back to work four months later. And I was just like, something in me was just like, I deserve better. 
and my whole perspective kind of changed. And that's what I have until 30. There you go. <laughs> Wonderful. <laughs> Thank Shit. you very much. <laughs> I think it deserves that little applaud right there. That is wonderful. Damn. <laughs> let me act, let you ask a question. <laughs> I think I think you covered like several yes, of our questions sweet. there. I think that goes. I don't think that it needs to be structured in any type of way. Um, <clears throat> we can go to a di- couple different avenues mm-hmm. now. We can talk about Colorado Springs, your first impressions. Oops. Oh, Lord. About activism and how you've um, uh, explored that throughout, like certain, like your first first places being these ministries, mm-hmm. um, or or even now, and how that has how that has impacted you in Colorado Springs. You know, we can yeah. get into all of it. Um, cool. But I think going to Colorado Springs, if you like to, your yeah. First Co- impressions. Oh, Lord, it was hard. <laughs> Lord Jesus. Ooh. um i I was five months pregnant so i was just like you know and i couldn't drive Mm because i came from new york city so Mm -hmm. i was just like lots of dynamics happening there so you know they picked me up in denver and that day they were having like this festival in denver we went to denver (laughs) festival and i'm like oh colorado's good we good (laughs) okay colorado (laughs) we good and funny enough when i was like you know when i decided to leave my young people i mean young people are just everything in my life um it became like adults became really important to me and then there's just young people that mm-hmm. became important to me that are now like not young people anymore right like someone that used to call me their mom and i used to call them my daughter mm-hmm. um, who has her master's in education is just a badass um it's freaking 31 years old this year. I oh, wow. like that's not my young people anymore. <laughs> but um, my, I all say that all to say that my young people were like, "You're gonna go to Colorado and be a Nuggets fan, <laughs> right?" Nuggets. And they used to, um, cause I kind of like, you know, got them prepared. Like I'm not gonna be here next year. Right. Um, and they would leave like pictures of mountain lions on my <laughs> on my desk. Like you're gonna get eat, ma'am. Miss, come on, miss. Yeah, miss, you're about to get eaten by a bear out there. And I'd be like, stop it. It's going to be great. You're going to be nuggets. Broncos? Shit. So um, my first impression was like Denver for two seconds. And then that evening we started driving down. And I remember I was like, oh, my gosh, there's so much space. Mm -hmm. There's like so much unused space. Like I've never seen anything like this my whole life. Right, right. yeah i've been people will say oh this is the first time you've been in the mountains no i come from the andorandak mountains in new york yes we have mountains it's mm-hmm. a real thing mm-hmm. they're beautiful la, la, la. we used to go apple picking it's a real thing mm-hmm. but um i've never seen so much like nothing right nothingness um and that was really like like one of my first impressions and then i think the second first impression of all of that was like um was like, I remember the first time I saw a black person here. <laughs> and I had not seen a black person in outside of my friendship group. <sighs> like in months. <laughs> wow. Like I had I had gone months without seeing a person of color. Um one of my first impressions were like I remember I was going to like where Denny's or something. Yeah. And we were like the only people of color in like jam-packed sunday sunday and i was like mm-hmm. am i allowed to be here mm-hmm. you know, um, <laughs> I know about that. <laughs> you know, like, is it okay can i sit i will pay oh gosh right <laughs> um 
And so I remember I was at a gas station and it was off of Galley and Academy. And it was what the native roots is right now. Um, mm. It was a regular gas station back then. And um, <laughs> I pulled up and there was a black person and I was like, hi. And she was like, hi. Because <laughs> I was just so excited. I was like, another black person. <laughs> You want to be friends? No. Okay. <laughs> right. I Where's guess. Yeah, I know. Like, where you from? Where you been at? Um, and then, you know, I started getting around the military folks once I spent some time here and then realized, oh, there's black people that are military here. Mm-hmm. And that was interesting. But the last two years has definitely changed the demographics. You can see it. Like, it's not as often. So, um, my activism work really started when I was 15 and I learned that I could be an activist or organizer. I learned organizer skills. Mm -hmm. Um, I would say I was always an advocate um, because, like, as a person of color, you have no other choice. Mm -hmm. You know, like, I remember being in New Paltz like, fuck this system. You won't give me this loan. Mm -hmm. This ain't even your motherfucking money. Like, what is the matter with you? Susan, get it together. (laughs) Um, And then coming back the next day, like, See, I told you you were going to give it to me. Because, you know, I was... I, I From my mom, I learned letter writing early. Mm. My mom would be like, there's a problem, we're going to write a letter. Mm. And my mom would just write a letter. Yeah, like, it was crazy. Mm-hmm. And so then, when I went to college, one of my advocacy skills were like, oh, you won't do anything for me, Susan? Bet. <laughs> I'm going to email mm-hmm. your dean and multiple deans mm-hmm. and CC and talk about how I'm not getting adequately assistance, right? Y'all want my money, but don't want my money. Come mm-hmm. on. <laughs> and so a lot of my advocacy started, I would say it was always like, you just have to fight for what you want mm-hmm. or what the world you want to see. And so I would say also like my organizing started with my mom. My mom was like, my mom taught me a lot of fundamental things. Like one of them was like karma. Mm-hmm. Whatever you do something bad is going to come back to you. We weren't allowed to steal. One time, like I remember um, a cousin of ours stole something and she like dragged him with like and beat his ass in front of the owner. I was like, oh, never mm-hmm. again, won't be me. Uh-huh. Um, <laughs> won't be me. Won't be yeah, me. so, um, I, and I guess all, all of that has to do with, like morality. In her brain, it wasn't like you don't steal because of a religious reason. It was you don't steal because um, the karma, you don't steal because this is your community. You don't steal from your community. Mm-hmm. This is a local business owner. This is the dude that went, I need to get bread for you. He's going to give it to me. And right. you stole this from him. Right. That is not okay. And so I would say like a lot of my advocacy organizing, I realized as I've grown older, is because of the foundational understanding of my mother. Mm-hmm. Like my mother was a person that didn't litter. Mm-hmm. Like she would see you litter. You had to walk those three blocks. You better... Did you? Is that yours? Mm-hmm. The whole block could be full of litter, but it wasn't my litter. Yeah, for surely. She was not having it, and so because of that, and she was also about advocating for other people. Like we would go to places, like you know, go get food stamps, and there would be people that couldn't speak English, and she's a Spanish, you know, her native language is Spanish, so mm-hmm. they would be very surprised, obviously, because she was a black presenting right. woman. So they right. were, like, oh, you can speak it mm-hmm. um, but she and she dealt with a lot of injustice in that space for that reason similar injustice that, that i have had to witness of people being very surprised um nonetheless she um 
she would advocate for the whole block. Like, mm. she did not put care. And when I mean advocate for the whole block, like, advocate for the whole block. My mom was the person that was, like, if somebody was in trouble on the block, she'd be like, you can stay in my place. Mm-hmm. Like, she, so she really taught me community, basically. Um, she respected elders. Like, an elder could be like, you stupid ass slut. She'd be like, yes, ma'am. Mm-hmm. So there was just a certain, um, I was just taught in a certain way of, like, cultivating community and respecting community mm-hmm. and being and using your privilege for community because in her brain she was like i can speak two languages and my mom ended up getting her gd and did like two years in college mm-hmm. you know like in a community college mm-hmm. but she was a very she was an avid reader so she was super intelligent and she understood that right she understood right. like she had a benefit as um like she was not her mother who came to this country and didn't know the language or you know had to maneuver those things so Anyway, she, um, so I would say my organizing and community started there. And then when I was like 15, um, I was taught the skills, you know what I mean? Of mm-hmm. like, you have to start educating, educating the public, right? Like the reason why people make the decisions that they make is because they're uneducated. Mm-hmm. Um, and not even only uneducated, like formally educated, but like they're unaware of what's actually happening. And also sometimes we can't imagine something that doesn't exist, mm-hmm. right? Um, and so a lot of that was where my advocacy started. Um, and I started small little campaigns you know, where I was like collecting food and mm. I was, um, what is it like helping people like fill out their immigrant paperwork? Right. Um, <clears throat> what is it? Started helping people like do their like FAFSA. When I learned how to do it, I was like, I'm going to teach people how to do FAFSA because mm-hmm. this shit is really complex and hard. It most definitely is. Right? Like, <laughs> and as like my mom didn't really know how to maneuver that. So mm-hmm. I was going into a system where it was like, can you help me? Not really. Yeah. Like, good luck. You know, here's my taxes that I had to like fight for you to give them to me, right? Right. And I kind of started talking about like different ways, like they're like basically like how the system functions. So mm-hmm. a lot of my work before, like when I was, and I was doing like community work, like I helped make like a soup ch- kitchen because I got like a summer job working at this like corporate, like uh, it was called New Song Community Church, but it was mm-hmm. like a corporation. Mm-hmm. And so they let me start a scoop, soup kitchen there. And so we fed the home- houseless um, and I did after school programming and so on and so forth. So that's how I used those skills. Then when I got on the college camp- campus, I was like, oh, and I started learning like, this is just a microcosm of society realistically. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. it was, I personally felt like it was way easier to organize because I'm like, I already know who I'm fighting. Like, I know it's very easily identifiable mm-hmm. who this argument is going to be, mm-hmm. um, aka the president of <laughs> college, university at the time. Um, and so then we, um, you know, it started with like, you're cutting funding to Black Studies Department, even though they have the most influx of students, and those who are majors can't even finish their major because you keep on cutting funding so we keep on having less professors right Mm -hmm. why are you doing that and having rallies around that like this is a racist act this is this is uh this is part of like what we know now to be like privilege and white supremacy right like now we have the words for it when i first got to college it was hard even in high school like because I would say it was the end of the era of believing that integration was like where it was at, right? Mm-hmm. And I think what like what was difficult is that people didn't believe in racism anymore. 
So when we used to have conversations and be like, oh, this is racism, people be like, that doesn't exist anymore. Right, yeah. We're in college. You're so, like, you're ridiculous. And I'm like, no. This yeah. institution, this whole institution is racist. Yeah. Like, especially, like, being in a history classes mm-hmm. versus going to, like, my black history classes because I was, like, pre-law history. Mm. And I was like, y'all motherfuckers are still teaching lies. And in high school, I taught real, I was taught real history. Right. I was taught like the people's history. I was taught about Che Guevara. I was taught about revolutions. Mm -hmm. Because my school was nothing, my high school was nothing but a bunch of white hippies. Mm. Um, And so I thought everybody learned that. I thought (laughs) that that's the way everybody learned. Mm -hmm. And I was just like, in college, like, are you serious? And I used to get, I used to actually get in like big trouble even in high school because I used to come, I used to go to the library and get fixated and be like, this is to disprove everything that you're having us read. Can we stop reading that, please? Mm. Can you read a book? Like, and you know, that was, yeah. Yeah. I got a couple of interesting grades for that reason. Yeah. (laughs) Um, But long story short, my um, organizing was like really focused on like the empowerment of people and having that space. And then it became about like, you know, um, so I did that work. Um, And then when I went to back home, I was like, I was really lost for a long time. And I had a great mentor that um, Mr. Lewis, who was a pastor at that church, Mm -hmm. who took me under his wing and was like, you want to do stuff? Let's do it. Mm And would let me just like do fi- like get finance people to talk about financing and mm-hmm. do um, like people owning like mm-hmm. you know what I mean like how do we buy back our block right. our block you know what I mean um, because Harlem was being gentrified at that time right and so then it started with that then I had to get like a real job and do like HR stuff for a year and that was really interesting too because you realize who gets hired who doesn't right mm-hmm. um, you realize people don't have no idea of what a 401k is and how like companies will exploit that right mm. um and yeah and then went to work for um ympj um and what is it did organizing around school to prison pipeline and was like oh shit my brother would have never made it mm-hmm. the system was made for him not to make it right and then you have like it was in the south Bronx, so it was like we're <clears throat> actually right across the street from where hip-hop is born mm-hmm um, right across the street from um, the Bronx River Projects. And um, most of our young people were coming from the Bronx River Projects. And they were like, oh, this is the way that's working? Like, mm-hmm. what the hell? And then we had a lot of immigrant folks in that space. So we like, or undocumented folks. Um, and so we were doing the original Dream Act of mm-hmm. like, people should be and i didn't realize how immigration worked until like i had met my close friend from here in college where she was like she was an illegal immigrant Mm. and i never knew or undocumented immigrant um i didn't even know what that meant and i was like what do you mean she was like yeah i almost didn't go to college even though her grades were like fifteen thousand times better than mine went to better high school and i was like this is a weird system right mm-hmm. um, and then all, exactly and then also realize like how much it costs like and the elitism of classism that mm. causes right and mm. who gets in and who doesn't um, so worked a lot on the original dream act and then worked off and who oh, like 
great organizers worked with great organizers like Julian Tyrell who became like the ED he was doing the environmental justice work um, who became like the ED of a Philadelphia like nonprofit and still does environmental justice mm. um, super dope black environmental justice this is my godfather of my child mm. um, Naima Coster who just became like last year number one New York Times bestseller author um, yeah and like first immigrant Dominican and mm. went to Yale and we used to have to like stop from talking to each other about like what the hell was that about right mm. um you know Crystal Peartree who was the, uh, the the organization also did like a lot of corporation work because we were trying to buy back right mm -hmm. so like working through that um and her, like now she works for the city doing like um urban planning and how not to justify people right mm. um so yeah worked with a lot of amazing people uh kelsey gibson who passed away was getting her doctorate at boston university like 20 years ago and i took her role and then she became an organizer mm. and we worked really closely and she made this um we worked on a gd program that has social justice uh, so we would teach adults Mm -hmm. GD mm -hmm. in a social justice lens mm -hmm. and help them pass the GD like in like the neighborhood um, so my, I used all of that organizing some of it really really was successful and some of it was like this is a system that's never going to change mm -hmm. and I think for me I never I decided to go into the hardest part of the system which was the educational system mm -hmm. <laughs> um, and I didn't know that mm -hmm. when I first decided that um, actually all the systems are uh, shit show but um, it really exploded when I got here to Colorado because when I was working with students here, there was a lack of critical thinking skills, which was really weird to me because <laughs> I had young people in the Bronx that could process and problem solve and critically think better than young people taking an AP psychology class and knew every single piece of a jellyfish but could not tell, you could not tell them, come up with a question that's a theory in psychology. Mm -hmm. And they're like, oh, you want me to actually think? Mm -hmm. Like, you're not gonna give me the answer. And really being like, and realizing that the system wants them to do exactly what they're doing. Exactly. Um, and that's where my activism started to spurt out here. Um, I didn't wanna go back to teaching. <laughs> I really didn't, because I hate the structure so much. Um, and because I'm a thematic teacher, um, <clears throat> social studies and thematic teachers in high schools are really, diff they're dying. They're dying inside every day. Mm -hmm. Because the way that we teach is chronologically, mm -hmm. which is just bullshit, right? It's mm -hmm. very whitewash, white Absolutely. supremacist of like, this is what's important and right. this is what we've determined is important versus teaching thematically so that you understand like the cause and effect. You understand why we are even talking about exactly. this date. Exactly. Why is this important? This battle was not important, but what was important was, right? right. And we still see that today because the reality is that super cliche is i think i've never said this before but i'm gonna say it, say it. history repeats itself right mm. and it's his <laughs> story so it's whoever's telling that story right and what mm. lens we're talking um telling about and i think the best history is when you have diverse perspectives of what actually occurred right mm. um and we're seeing a lot of that happen quicker because young people are not about it anymore. They're mm -mm. like, no thank you, ma'am. <laughs> uh, <laughs> you know what I mean? It's like that shit's somewhere else, not here. And so I think um, working in the school system and realizing like the bureaucracy and how much like young people are made to, like we're still on a farming 
schedule, mm-hmm. right? Like it's we're still on a farming schedule and we're still making factory workers. Mm-hmm. And so I used to, st- I started really, I think my activism here really started with being like, how do I teach these young people that never had a black teacher? I'm in an all white classroom. Mm-hmm. Um, how do I teach them their biases, right? How do I teach them the bias of history? How do I, while teaching them the like, the paradigms of education and mm-hmm. all of these things. Um, and that's where my activism here started. It started with like, how am I activating these young people to know that this is a shit show? Mm-hmm. Welcome to the shit show. Because the thing about it is like, New York young people are like, this is a shit show. Right, Welcome to the shit it. show. Yeah. yeah, exactly. It's hard not to know about it. Yeah. But living here, it's really so sheltered. And I mean, I was working in District 20, my last district. So it was a very, very interesting space. Mm-hmm. And so, um, I mean, I had parents that made me come in with my Latin degree that they could not read because they could not believe that I had a dual master's from Fordham University. Mm-hmm. Um, I had people write racist things on my car, leave me notes. Mm-hmm. Um, it was a very interesting space to be in. But I also met dope-ass young people that were just like, teach me more. Mm-hmm. Right? And got my classroom numbers too high (laughs) for me to even manage. Mm -hmm. Um, During that time, I was also working with the NAACP um, as the NAACP was like really trying to, the local chapter at the time was really trying to work on some like serious local issues around race Mm -hmm. um, because there was just like a lot of racist things occurring throughout Colorado Springs. Absolutely. Um, And still the case, very much. Very much so. Yeah, um, the level of, (laughs) violence in microaggressions that are not micro that happened that happened here is pretty immense and i really truthfully believe the reason why it happens is because black people here are too scared like in new york city we will just beat your ass like Mm -hmm. it don't even matter like i you know i mean Mm -hmm. You know, it's That's just... That's I put it. <laughs> That's what it is right there. And it's like, I don't believe in violence. I'm going to be honest. I'm a transformative justice person. <laughs> but I also believe that when you understand that there are ramifications to what you're going to do and they're going to happen, it's human behavior to stop doing the shit that you're doing. Mm-hmm. So even if you are racist, you won't, you won't be racist around me because mm-hmm. you know things will occur. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know... Yeah. So, I mean, I've been known to like, so my, and then my activism kind of like spurred it in. Um, I started working at, I left teaching, um, which was one of the hardest decisions of my life. Um, And I started my own business where I was like, basically, I was really being the connector to people. So you need chairs for the CFAT? Yes. I was coaching people into starting their own like things. Um, I was helping people like, like, um, and participating in poetry and art mm-hmm. like through poetry 719 and it's baby moments <laughs> like now they're just like ah yeah all the things are so dope as af and so then um and i was helping other organize i was teaching people how to organize mm-hmm. basically because i just didn't want to be in the limelight mm-hmm. um i don't like to be the person that people know that i did something mm-hmm. so for instance last year i helped organize let's say 20 events no one would know that i help organize those events Mm -hmm. um i don't like to be the person that 
it doesn't make a difference. Right. Until we eradicate racism, <laughs> homophobia, transphobia, toxic masculinity, like all of these factors, mm-hmm. it doesn't even matter. What does that do? And I feel like that's the hard part I'm having with Colorado Springs because now act, like activism or organizing is seen as a like celebrity show. Mm-hmm. Um, which to me is like disgusting <laughs> in so many ways. Um, and so I'm just not about it. And so I have actually like taken five step backs where I'm five step back when it comes to like steps back when it comes to like doing local organizing i rather do now statewide organizing i rather do like policy work i rather do because it's also like there's a ton of traumatized people mm-hmm. doing the work mm-hmm. sometimes um and they're bleeding their trauma and they're eating each other away mm. Um, like and toxic masculinity nobody's dealing with that right like so black people guess racism you have it baby it's uh, <laughs> it's barely uncurable on all of us right we all process it differently and also have to heal from it and so it shows up in so many different ways where it's like because you're a feminine presenting person you know or for me it's been you know when I was like oh y'all y'all is like homophobic as AF are y'all dealing with that? Mm-hmm. And it was like, oh, we don't really want to deal with that. But can you help us? Can you do all of these things? Right. Believe your, you know, um, to the point that like I've gotten into arguments with other organizers and been like, you can run through, come through. No problem. And mm-hmm. once it got to that level, that's when I decided that wasn't because no one, we don't have the same foundations. I have the foundation of community. Right. <clears throat> This is not a parade. This is not a joke. This is not for any fandom because that's just weird and awkward. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so, so a lot of my advocacy has ter- was a, a lot of like equity stuff here um, within the educational system, bringing resource. And then I started doing LGBTQ work, and that felt like really, really like the most empowering space I've ever been in for myself. Where it was like, oh, I'm not gonna give no fucks. That's mm-hmm. where we're at. Wow. Mm-hmm. This is great. Um, And then also like dealing with racism within the queer community Mm -hmm. um, and trying to dismantle racism within the queer community. Mm -hmm. Um, And then the people that are not there, where are our Latinx folks, where are Asian folks, where are um, recent immigrants, where are like, what does that look like, right? And looking at everything as a spectrum. And also like, this has been a cis white male space and y'all got y'all liberation, which y'all little ring situation can get married. <laughs> but black trans people are still dying in huge numbers. Um, and making a lot of my work to be like, we shouldn't have to have an LGBTQ center. We shouldn't have to be picking babies out of the river. You mm-hmm. know? We need to be making multiple spaces, right? Like all spaces should be safe. And so a lot of my um, advocacy work has worked around um, building those safe spaces, which means like going to the, you know, DA and being like, um, when you charge someone, you're misgendering them the whole process. And then you're wondering why they're not compliant with you. Mm-hmm. Or when you're looking at two, two same sex or two, um, yeah, same sex, um, humans, right. Or two cisgendered humans that are in a relationship, you're deciding who's the aggressor in a very interesting way. Mm-hmm. Um, and you're using all of your biases, mm-hmm. right? Um, and so doing a lot of that work in a lot of different spaces. And so, um, yeah, I don't know if that answers your questions. 
Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> we ain't gonna apologize for anything. Yeah, that's where we at. <laughs> <laughs> no, not at all. Okay. Or we can go longer as well. No, 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 no. I'm gonna, I'm gonna try to reel it in. <laughs> All right. <clears throat> Start off with, with cool. Um, the question that I know, you, I know you've had a tight knit relationship with youth, um, both in Harlem and Colorado Springs, and that you've gone over how you've been drawn to it and what you find, what you resonate with within youth. Yeah. But you just, you just talked about, um, you just brought up. Uh, working specifically with LGBTQ plus mm-hmm. communities, and so I was wondering what were some of the biggest challenges you might have had with queer youth, and and also what were some of your favorite things about working specifically with queer youth in general in Carl Springs. I just remember the question I had. Okay, <laughs> write it down. <laughs> my, my, the question that I had pertains to this. Okay, and so it was um, what, when specifically did you um kind of solidify in your journey your gender fluidity mm. and how how did that play into working with queer youth Whew. yeah okay cool i like that question um so i would say like a lot of the work that i did with inside out wasn't necessarily i didn't work direct well no i worked directly with youth but didn't it mm-hmm. was this weird parallel where um i mean anybody that works for the center i am more than adequately able to be in space, right? I Mm -hmm. think one of the hardest things is that the work that I'm doing outside really kind of, I can see it combusting, right, in front Mm -hmm. of me, Um, in the sense of like, you have young people that are houseless, you have young people that um, are not affirmed in their household and are dealing with uh, high levels of suicidal ideation sometimes, and Mm -hmm. also dealing with like a lot of different circumstances, and then also are like, super happy and joyful human beings in the midst of that mm-hmm. um and i think um one of the difficulties with me was like i never came out to my family i was just me mm-hmm. and it's been that pretty consistently like you know every it's just always been that um and i think the hardest part about working with youth that are in Colorado Springs it's like this family acceptance that I never really looked for um and so sometimes it was really hard holding space in that space because I'm Mm. just like who gives a fuck like you know what I mean um and I think it's also like my native New Yorker that's just like like that shit don't matter yeah like do you you know yeah um I think the hardest part is the way seeing the way the decisions that adults are making hurt young people Mm. like truly truly hurt young people and they have no um in many ways they don't have power right they're disempowered in so many ways Mm -hmm. and i think the things that i really enjoyed working about inside out is empowerment of young people Mm -hmm. it was that space of like um getting to work one-on-one with young people and teaching them how to organize or like we can do a survey and Mm. doing assessments and doing all of these things and then also like literally building a stage for them to be like you're gonna like speak at this right you're gonna go lobby at in denver you're gonna go talk on this um or you're gonna present and you're gonna teach people about like lgbtq Mm -hmm. and seeing the development of my young people in that space um like no one could take that away from me like even on my worst days that's probably what still got me to work you know Mm um and the fact that y'all teach me you know what i mean like like the reality is that 
when I learned what being gender fluid was, it really resonated with me, but I felt like I will always be a black woman. So then it was really hard for me to be okay with like being gender fluid because I will always be a black woman. Mm -hmm. I will always be the mother of my children. Mm -hmm. And it just felt like, it felt difficult to sit in this space of fluidity for that reason. Mm. Um, because that didn't feel very fluid. Those mm. pieces don't feel, they aren't fluid. Right. Um, and so, and then also realizing like, I guess as a person that has cisgendered privilege or appear, like appearance of cisgendered right, privilege, right. right? Like realizing that when I, when I came out as a gender fluid person, like I felt a lot of pressure because I didn't feel trans enough. Mm. I didn't feel non-binary enough. I didn't feel any of these pieces enough. Mm. Um, and it's really been through like my partner, to be honest, who is like a trans masculine human who has been non-binary before non-binary was a thing. Mm. And the what I say by that was like, in a lot of like, and they they actually did this project two years ago because when right. your professor hit me up, I was like, I know people that should be doing this, not me. <laughs> um, but and also like, they have affirmed my existence. They have affirmed the fact that I could be all of those things. Mm. And even in that gender fluidity and me knowing who I am, you know, um, in dealing with high levels of dysmorphia and. Um, fat phobia and just dealing with like my body issues and being Latinx and growing up with a certain like stereotypes of the way I'm supposed to look right. and be um, has been an interesting transition. I think young people definitely have helped me realize how empowering it was for me to come out as gender fluid because mm. for a long time I was just like I don't really have to because I never really came out as anything in my whole life mm -hmm. so I was like I don't really have to come out as gender fluid I could just be gender fluid because I am gender fluid I've mm -hmm. always been gender fluid mm -hmm. so I don't have to really right and so a part of me for a very long time was like I don't have to do that right mm -hmm. like that's not a necessity and it hasn't been until recently when um <sighs> it's interesting when you're living in your power people see you as something that they've decided that you are more than that than before like so before i wasn't when i wasn't out as a gender fluid person people would never be like oh yeah you know women like they never made this women argument with me mm. and then afterwards it was like women and it was like uh <laughs> what the fuck right um so two things when it comes to young people and i guess my like my gender fluidity really like stick out to me one time i was doing a panel and it was at uccs and it was for um women's history month and i was like uh right because this happened i literally have <laughs> facebook posts that like just letting you know it's coming mm -hmm. in three weeks please do not reach out to me mm -hmm. i don't sit right but they were like no we want to do like non-binary like a fluidity of femininity and i'm mm -hmm. like oh okay we can right. get behind we can that, that yeah. right so I did a panel with a young person who I know very well, who's um, non-binary. And at some point she said, um, they said, well, they use both, but they, they said, um, 
I'll always be a black woman. And I was like, we could say that. <laughs> you know and i remember um because i know this young person very well i like hit them up and i was like can we have coffee mm. i was like we could say that <laughs> and um feeling just really empowered by that moment when like i realized this young person made me realize at the old ass age of 37 that i don't i really like can be all the things and nothing all at the same time absolutely and so yeah so like young people have definitely assisted in that space and then also like when we were having queer prom this year i was doing the nails of someone mm. i was teaching young people how to do press on nails we we're slaying out here right absolutely yeah so i was like teaching them like all the health hazards and like be careful don't do this you know whatever mm -hmm. and i was doing the nails of a young person who's gender fluid and they were like i am so happy that you said that you were i've never met anyone over the age of 30 that said that they're gender fluid how did you like and i was like it's been a whirlwind mm. because one of the, and the thing that i was emphasizing to them was like we didn't have the language mm -hmm. we just didn't have the language but it wasn't like it wasn't super obvious it wasn't something that i didn't go through and i can think about all the times in my life how like my gender fluidity has really been really difficult and as i'm dealing with my gender fluidity i'm dealing with life mm -hmm. and i'm like what the fuck mm -hmm. you know and don't understand that i'm actually going through a transgender experience you know on this earth and so that really empowered me to be because for a while i used to be like well i don't want to come out as gender fluid because i want like young people to think that i'm trying to be like them because that's you know like in my age group or gap right. or whatever the hell that means um it's very seen as like that's trendy and all of that stuff right mm -hmm. and then also i felt the pressure of like i don't want people to think that i'm saying i'm gender fluid because now i work for a lgbtq plus right. organization right um and so for a long time i didn't tell people i was gender fluid i just started going by they them pronouns you know or she them pronouns mm -hmm. or goddess as my pronoun for mm -hmm. a long time i went through a long time i went my pronoun was goddess right um and that's how i would present you know and um even with the name goddess like my family has been like well that's really feminine and i'm like right. goddess has masculine energy I was like, the water, do you see it as feminine or masculine energy? And they're like, we see it as feminine energy. Yeah, the water is rough as fuck. It will fuck your ass up. Mm -hmm. It has all the energies actually, right? Mm -hmm. And so kind of having these conversations around like feminine and masculine energy and how they show up for me. Um, but all that to say, yeah, um, coming out as a gender fluid person was really, really, really hard. Um, yeah, I think it was it was it was the hard one of the hardest most difficult things I've done because I was doing so much advocacy mm. within the queer community, um, within Black trans community. Um, it sometimes felt inauthentic of who I was, even though I knew who I was before the right. conversation, and right. also I was using my privilege. Right. Um, and it kind of took that away a little bit in many in some ways and a little bit. In, in, in a lot of ways it did. Mm. Even with my sexual violence work, I've never really told people that I've been raped or I've been sexually molested and all these other things because because in my queerness, I don't get that. I don't get to have that story because 
queer people are known they use that against us, right? They use as uh, weaponize it against us of like the only reason why you're queer is because you've gone through sexual violence. No, baby. Mm. No, that's mm-hmm. not the way this works, right? <laughs> right? Um, so I, it's eliminated certain pieces of my identity so that I can do activism in a place where I'm doing it not as a survivor but a person that has privilege. Mm. So yeah. Thank you. Yeah, no worries. I've, just in terms of my personal life, I've gone through a little bit of, I'm going through a little bit of that journey. Gender fluidity. It's beautiful. I'm so proud of you. I'm so <laughs> happy. You. I mean, I'm proud of you as well. <laughs> Ashe, I mean, I think that, um, you know, I have my own notions of gender fluidity, but, you know, I think all of it is beautiful, but I think that it's one of those things that, um, I just can't understand. Like, th- whatever. In the trans community, there are a lot of difficult things to understand mm-hmm. for a lot of people. Mm-hmm. But gender fluidity is something maybe I'm, like, biased. I can never understand how you can't understand that there's, like, a spectrum of energies and of things. I like, don't understand either. <laughs> right? Like, everything, nothing in nature is in the binaries. Right. And everything can be seen and energetically, like, in the spectrum. So, it's just one of those, I mean... Yeah, yeah, the trans community in itself, Lord. But um, unfortunately, this society is just... It functions for the for their greater good, let's mm-hmm. just say that. Mm-hmm. So congratulations. <laughs> Keep on pressing. And if you ever need anything, do not hesitate. <laughs> ever. I might, I might have to. <laughs> yeah, I mean... I might have to too, you know what I mean? <laughs> we gotta lean on community. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. I'll be here. But I know that we talked a little bit about um, Colorado Springs. I wanted to bring that back up mm-hmm. and delve deeper into that. Um, we mentioned our your first impressions of Colorado Springs. So I wanted to I wanted to see what you found that has like, resonated with you that you connected with um, in terms of places, spaces, communities um, specific to Black queer spaces. Um, Colorado Springs, if there are some to find. Yeah. And that have been especially especially important to you. Mm. Yeah, I think it's interesting because um, <laughs> people have um, I, coming from New York City, right? Like I met the director of like New York City Pride one time at a conference, mm-hmm. and there and he's like so Puerto Rican. I love him so much. <laughs> like, <laughs> cisgendered um, gay man. Like oh my gosh, my Boricua. I'm like yeah, yeah, uh-huh. bah, bah, bah. you know. And we're like having our moment. <laughs> Um, and in our conversation, we he invited me to go have dinner, mm-hmm. and I was like, "Yeah, let's go have dinner." Whatever the kids maybe want to go have dinner, we're just chatting it up. Um, and at some point, he's like, um, "Yeah, you must miss New York City Pride." And I'm like, "I've never been. I've never been." Mm-hmm. Um, there's something about Colorado Springs that because of the lack of culture, you have to look for it, mm-hmm. and you're like. The people that would never go to Pride, I mean, spent a long time in the village. Mm. That was that was the jam. <laughs> um, a lot of wildness. Um, <laughs> no comment there. Um, but Pride was not my thing. Like I was just like, you know, even the week, you know, that everybody's getting ready for it. Mm. But Pride here is a thing for me. You mm. know, um, I went to my first Pride here, like not because I wasn't out because I needed community 
Um, and so I would say that in the black queer space specifically, now they have um, Black Pride, which is awesome. And mm. um, I am definitely trying to get involved more into it's just it's a Denver base, so it's really difficult. Oh, okay. um, locally, I mean, you have Poetry 719 which the we do stuff they do dope stuff mm-hmm. in which we've had uh, you know they have like a qt park um poetry night mm-hmm. um and they are continuously kind of like featuring queer black artists you know what i mean and have mm-hmm. thrown events and have their fest- their arts festival um black queer spaces are hard here um they're very hard because i feel like the black community is hard here to even congregate then you add queerness to it Mm -hmm. and you add a different it's really interesting because like i've been meeting a lot of black lesbians and i'm like why don't you come out to things like where have you been you've been Mm. here for how long oh my (laughs) gosh where you been at right and it's because people you know it's it's a lot of dynamics Mm -hmm. like you know it's hard enough to be black here just being black is hard every single fucking day excuse my language you know ain't nobody really trying to add more disenfranchised oppressions (laughs) on that docket you know and some of us have privilege to maneuver ourselves in some space and some people don't and it's just and it's also um the fact that i feel like black so black spaces are dealing with white supremacy queer spaces are dealing with white supremacy and nobody's actually healing from white supremacy Mm -hmm. so then you bring a black queer person and they're dealing with all like all the trenches of bullshit right Mm -hmm. um i would say that like in the queer spaces it's been a blessing within the art space and within like people that are just doing radical inclusion where like i know like nico um who's a local artist here, um, used to have the Quail Club and used to have full, full moon nights mm. parties and we would go. and I, Yeah, it was so dope. That like, sounds really dope. It was so dope. Like all of, and it was, and the greatest part of it, it was like, I'm gonna be real. It was like the trans spectrum. Most people were like, you know, part of the trans community, mm-hmm. which really exposed me to a lot of things. Like having a conversations with a trans white woman was a closer... I had a closer relationship to experience than any other white person I have ever met. Mm-hmm. And I was like, oh shit, y'all can get it. Mm-hmm. You just, wait, <laughs> what? I, oh my gosh, I love you so much. Um, you know, um, yeah, so I would say like the black bot, the QT Pac, like the black queer space is it? I wouldn't say like available and then also like I feel like in many ways I feel like people eat each other up mm-hmm. <laughs> you know when you like my New Yorker is like I don't really need nobody to like me I just be coming to shit to just come to shit mm-hmm. you know and sometimes it's just like why are y'all so toxic towards each other we have so much people are eating us up alive enough right 
we don't have to do this and then i think another dynamic is that all the queer people are fucking all the queer people here there's no queer people Mm -hmm. there's not enough right Mm -hmm. that sounds really bad you might want to yeah but i mean you know everybody has like you know you go out to something everybody's like that's i've dated that person and that person and that person you know Mm -hmm. like i was because of my beautiful pansexuality i was not date i had the pleasure of not really getting into the mix of dating queer people Mm -hmm. and then i realized like i don't like cis gendered white I mean, well, I never dated a white person because that would just be oppressive to them. Mm. And I just, that's not, I'm not, that's toxic as fuck. I'm over here like, and your people did it, right? That's just not healthy in a relationship. So that's, I choose not, I choose to stay within my race. But um, then there's also the dynamic of like, um, so so people are just dating each other. And also like, you have polyamory. And mm-hmm. so like, heterosexuals have not d- like done well with relationships mm-hmm. they're not really good at building community either mm-hmm. and then we're acting like them <laughs> so here we are right and everybody's just like deciding to have really bad relationship and trauma bonding and all of these really not to like over therapize everyone but it's like really interesting and then i think also working for inside out i just have had to like keep very clear boundaries unfortunately because the work that i do is not going to be like diminished because Mm. you've we've decided that this is happening or how this is happening so Mm -hmm. and then also like queer people don't get respect right we're seen as over sexualized and all of these other pieces and we don't have a fundamental understanding like as black people we can honestly say we have a fundamental understanding of the way we treat each other Mm -hmm. queer people don't right and then also black people here come from everywhere Mm -hmm. so they don't have we are like culturalists here Mm -hmm. everybody's trying to like infiltrate their culture and it brings Colorado. So, yeah, we ain't got no black queer community. Other than I think, like, port- like there are certain spaces that are made. Right. Which are beautiful and blessed. And thank God we have them. Mm-hmm. But I think the actual community still needs a lot of, lot of work. It deals with the same thing Colorado community deals with. Mm-hmm. Just I think it's even worse. So, you said, you, you were saying that um, the... The full moon nights were past tense. That's, that's, that's it was pre-COVID. Uh, it was pre-COVID. And of course, it was CC students that started it. My son did it again. It was CC students. <laughs> yeah. It was great. It was like we used to come, bring food, mm-hmm. um, talk. It was really just talking. That's mm-hmm. all we did. That's was, all you need to do. It was like having, we would have, the Quail Cove would have like 30 people in the house. And it was just and what i mean people were trying to get me to go for it for like weeks and sometimes like i just i get too peopled because a lot Mm -hmm. of my job is to people Mm -hmm. and so i'll be like i can't do it i can't do it um yeah (laughs) and then also like um i also was dealing with like i don't know a lot of pressure within social anxiety of like how do i keep um like being able to be advocate Mm. be an advocate be a professional and like and i still deal with this a lot it's like sometimes i go into spaces and i don't know half of the people that are saying hello to me Mm -hmm. because i mean i'm doing queer stuff right Um, right which is great but then it becomes like really scary for me because after i got arrested that one time like i was getting notes and threatening letters and Mm. i almost lost my job like so i have like these protections up to a certain degree but Mm. then with my career people i don't want to have these protections Mm. but 
sometimes folks, you know, have different intentions or of being a friend, I guess. Friends are hard. They get harder when you get older. So Mm -hmm. make really good friendships in college. And then also realize that you mode and you change and your boundaries are different and that's Mm -hmm. okay too. Mm -hmm. But yeah. I don't know if that answered any of the questions, but no, that's definitely did. my understanding. No, no doubt. <laughs> <laughs> so I know that um, you're planning on leaving in three weeks. It's going to be sad to see you go. I'm not sure where you're going. Three weeks? Where am I going? You said am I that, leaving? You said you're moving, you're moving out of your crib. Oh, yeah, I am. But I'm staying in the Springs. Oh, yeah, y'all are see. stuck with me for another year. <laughs> But I have to move out of my, yeah, because, you know, uh, yeah, Colorado. No. Yeah. <laughs> Colorado Springs, 14% inflation this mm-hmm. year. Yeah, uh-huh. Highest in the nation. <laughs> Lord. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> but, well, I guess I guess my question may or may not apply mm-hmm. to this um, next moment of your life, but what kind of... What kind of community do you aim to establish in this oh. in this next parts of your life? I know that you also like move jobs and yeah, I'm. Uh, yeah, thank you so much for asking that. So I went. I like two three years ago. I started to call my soul tribe because I was just like I'm lonely. Like mm-hmm. I've done all the internal. It's beautiful. You did all the internal growth. You just healed, girl. <laughs> you made it. Look at you, right? Yeah, I'm so proud of you, yes. right? All the things. And then I got to a place where I was like, but I am a like, particularly in COVID, like realize I didn't have a lot of friendships. Mm. Um, a lot of, most of my friendships were rotating around work and mm-hmm. also deciding like, yeah, COVID did all the things, right? Like mm-hmm. if we believe that we wanna break white supremacy, why the hell am I working 80 hours a week, right? Like right. all these things. So all that to say, I started to call my soul tribe and I think the community that I'm trying to cultivate currently is more interpersonal than it has been in the past the community i've built in the past is more around like let's get people activated into doing something Mm -hmm. and i think the community i'm trying to build now is let's get let's i'm building community that's like let's not do shit just just to fuck up the system Mm -hmm. let's just live Mm -hmm. like when are we going on a trip Mm -hmm. when are we let's go to hot springs Mm what book are you reading what where are you in your development and growth absolutely and more way more interpersonal um and it really came out of like seeing the world in joy and pleasure only mm-hmm. um i started to realize most of my conversations with other human beings that were adults were all very very serious conversations there was no space for laughter mm-hmm. ever like i to every year i make uh what is it? I make a promise to myself and I choose like one very, very generic word that the year is going to be about. Mm-hmm. And like last year, it was about laughter. I want to laugh more. Mm-hmm. I spent my whole life, I did a lot of fucking crying, baby. Mm-hmm. My cancer ass, what? We cried a lot, mm-hmm. you know? Um, I don't want to do that. I want to laugh. Mm-hmm. Um, and I started to realize that my revolution is in laughter. I wasn't made in mode in this society to laugh, to have joy. So a lot of my um, work 
recently in community is reminding community of how to have pleasure and laughter and joy even when we're fighting and working for something right Mm. so even when we're and then also like micro levels of accountability so we i can't work within a community that is um toxic has toxic masculinity so a lot of my community work is around how do we how do we um, work through your toxic masculinity? Why mm. does it even exist still? Mm-hmm. And what does it function in? And the liberation of folks like fight only working in their higher, like their highest energy, which means like it doesn't feel bothersome. It doesn't always have to feel uncomfortable. Uncomfortability is a part of it, right? But the uncomfortable part is not you doing it. The uncomfortable mm-hmm. part is actually what's happening, what's occurring. Mm-hmm. Um, and people working within the energy that they want to, like, and understand that they have energy and there's certain things that you do low and high, right? So a lot of my community work is like working with my comrades in different ways to show them that we don't have to, like, also like on a biological level, when we go through trauma, when we go through chaos, we get addicted to the chaos and the trauma. Mm -hmm. Like it does something to the brain in which everything has to be chaotic and traumatic up to a certain degree. And so how do we heal those certain parts? We have to change patterns. Um, And part of those patterns is not continuously having chaos Mm -hmm. or seeing things in a chaotic way. And then also linking that into like, we're breaking the pillars of white supremacy by like not just doing shit and not worrying about time and not doing all of these things. I'm not living this life anymore. Mm-hmm. Who's coming with me? Mm-hmm. And so a lot of my community work, I would say, um, in this phase is like building better interpersonal relationships in which I, and again, wow, two years ago I manifested. I was like, I want to start working with people's crap. You know, when people meet me, it's like, this pedestal of like I'm perfect, mm-hmm. which is disgusting, right? Like no, <laughs> um, but then and also like I started to realize like I wasn't comfortable with people's shit, and I was like, uh, but we're working through a lot of hard shit, right? <clears throat> so why are we not holding space for that? Mm-hmm. So then. I started being more like, I'm just going to tell people all of my, the shit that I'm like, what's really bothering me. Mm. So like, if I'm going through like dysmorphia in the morning, or if I'm going through like, I just had an argument with my autistic 12 year old that is refusing to put on deodorant because I need to justify him putting on deodorant this morning to him Mm -hmm. for him to feel secure. And I just had that conversation. When we start this conversation and having coffee, I'm going to tell you, I need five minutes and you don't know what Jeremiah took me through this today. Like, right. Mm -hmm. I think who broke me out of that was Anaya. Anaya is like a warrior princess and is all about laughter and joy. Mm. She's like, you're serious? For what? <laughs> like, she came out the room like, this is a joke. <laughs> you don't know that this is a joke? You're taking it too seriously. <laughs> you know? And so, I've had to change my mentality and I think that's the community that's the community I want to build. I want to build one that is joyful, happy, understands and knows who they are and where they came from mm. and is healing through the trauma, the mm. generational trauma of that and is living in ha- happiness and joy and liberation and understanding that part of the happiness and joy and pleasure that they feel is part of their liberation and it is a part of breaking white supremacy it is a part of breaking all of these systems that don't function and work for us Mm -hmm. um as equally as also like doing the work Mm -hmm. um because it's all balance Mm -hmm. 
So that's where I am in my community building. Okay. Yeah. Some good steps. Yeah, <laughs> I'm being. I mean, I'm being paid for it now. <laughs> like people, like you know, earn that money. <laughs> well, that's another thing. You know, in the nonprofit sector, we're told we're not supposed to get paid. Right. This is a martyrship. I'm not supposed to be able to pay my rent. And look at how I. You know, I remember. Um, sorry. Last no, bit. No, I no, no. Um, we're. I was at. I'm part of the Women's Foundation Fund, and I'm part of the Women of Color Advisory Board. And there was an executive director and we were looking at a application and at some point like everybody was like on 1099s like mm. their their budget was like over a hundred thousand everybody was on 1099s and i was like we're not funding these people because they're not giving benefits they're not giving pto to their people like this is not the way this is not good mm. right like they're cultivating scarcity um and she came out and said well i didn't get paid i because she was a founder and like ed of her organization which mm-hmm. isn't um like the work that they fucking do is dope as fuck and it was really hard for me because she was puerto rican and you know like you kind of like see you're like you're like uh, we used to call them griots you know what i mean which is mm-hmm. like a west african word for like people that are like storytellers and elders and people that are like high in ranking of like our society right like right. i saw her as a griot and i literally had to tell my griot yeah and that's scarcity you didn't get paid for two years as the ed that Mm. is not what we're trying to cultivate Mm -hmm. you had to mortgage like put a second mortgage out on your house to continue to do this nonprofit. Mm -hmm. shame on this structure that made you do that absolutely and so i just am in a place where i'm just like trying to hold nonprofits accountable to the people that they serve that that serve the people that they want to serve right Mm -hmm. um and not abusing people Mm -hmm because the system is very very abusive and very traumatic because of the abuse right um and so i'm just that's kind of like where my mentality is it's like in the liberation of the people that already believe they're liberated Mm. so um yeah i'm excited about that work um and i'm hoping that we see more impact so yeah that's all i got for that question (laughs) certainly i think what's that too yeah i guess we can conclude yeah <clears throat> i very much appreciate your time mm-hmm. i only have a couple couple questions for you to wrap it up okay um um i guess if if you wanted people to hear one thing from you um what would that be and that can be specifically as a person a human living on this earth or as a community organizer um what a piece of advice you would give to youth in Colorado springs about organizing about mm. living about breathing I my piece of advice is that um, we can't go into the community um, and fix anything when we haven't worked on ourselves internally, and when we are at our best our best version, our community can be at our best version at their best version because they're going to be a mirror to us. Mm-hmm. And I guess I say that all to say that like you're worth it to choose you mm-hmm. and taking care of you like all of the pieces, um, you didn't make this, you didn't make and construct this, um, and most likely you won't be the only person to like destroy it. But mm. part of destroying, like destroying those pieces is also like taking care of you, because um, we're taught not to take care of ourselves. And so I think the biggest piece of advice that I had to learn <laughs> the very long and hard way is that the revolution is not in your burnout. Mm. It just isn't. The revolution is in your joy and happiness. And um, 
when I was a young person, they used to tell us that we were like lazy as fuck. Don't be lazy as fuck. Be lazy as fuck. Mm. Go be lazy. Go take a fucking nap for all of us. Mm. Go rest. Go look at some leaves. Go do some art. Go do what like fills your cup all the time. Because that's where the real revolution is, in my opinion. So. Yeah, I can absolutely agree with that. Mm-hmm. Don't adult until you have to. So yeah, thank you so much for taking the time. Thank you very much, guys. Um, let me know if y'all need anything else. Good luck this semester. <laughs> very Good appreciate luck. It. With CC. <laughs> Lord. <laughs> I mean, I've been around long enough to know that every season is interesting at CC. Mm-hmm. Never a dull moment here. Never a dull moment. No, that's right. So be kind to yourselves. So, yeah. And if y'all need anything, y'all have my email. So feel free. Thank you very much. Yeah. It's not in spam anymore. So I can respond. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> Nothing else you want to add? Yeah. Is there anything else you want to add? No, that's really it. I mean, yeah. That's All it. Right. Thank you Thank so you much. Thank you very much, yeah. Goddess Taisha. Thank you. I feel like I didn't talk about my kids enough, you know, and they like they were super impactful in my life. Mm-hmm. Like I wouldn't be the human I was if it wasn't for my kids. But other than that, yeah, I think it was right on. <laughs> Wonderful. So, yeah. Hey, y'all did it. Look at this. See, you did it. Oh. We're bringing the mic now. <laughs> right at the end. Right at the end. <laughs> Lord, should I just right pause at it? the end. Thanks. <laughs>